My mission is simple, to make you money. I'm here to level the playing field for all investors. There's always a bull market somewhere, and I promise to help you find it. Mad Money starts now. Hey, I'm Kramer. Welcome to Mad Money. Welcome to Kramerica. Other people want to make friends. I'm just trying to save you some money. My job is not just to entertain, but educate and teach and put this in context. So call me at 1-800-743-CBC or tweet me at Jim Kramer. A vaccine. A vaccine. My kingdom for a vaccine. Yep, if you want to understand this market, including today, the Dow tumbled 354 points. Sell, sell, sell. S&P lost 1.23%. And then Nasdaq plunged a hideous 2.29%. With many big cap tech stocks taken on the chin, you have to recognize that things will never be the same in this country or around the world until we get a vaccine. The pandemic, not the Fed. They know nothing. Not the election is the most important driver of the stock prices. That's right. Most important of stock prices. Lately, it's feeling very binary. We get a vaccine sooner than expected. We save the economy. But if the process drags on and we don't have any stimulus, we're going to need to adjust to the new slow-to-no-growth huddle-at-home normal. Therefore, our fate is in the hands of a few dozen companies with a dizzying array of clinical trials. And whoever gets there first is going to make a lot of money for shareholders. And that's why we at CNBC decided to do something new that no one else has attempted. We surveyed 92 drug analysts and public health officials, the best we could find, state and local level, to handicap the chances of each of the main players. Now, we don't bet on, uh, we don't at least like to bet on life-threatening situations. I mean, this is a terrible disease. But, and this is an important but, we are asked over and over again, who is really in the lead? These are lives, not horses. But this does per se resemble handicapping because we are judging not just vaccines, but stocks too. That's our business. So coming in first with the support of 21 respondents, It's the Oxford University AstraZeneca vaccine, the one we just read about in that British publication, Lancet, on Monday. We know it got an excellent safety profile and several qualities that could lead to immunity. Second was Thai with Moderna and the Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine. They both got 19 votes. Third is CanSino Biologics. That's a Chinese vaccine company, eight votes. After that, Johnson & Johnson, Novavax, and the joint team of Sanofi and GlaxoSmithKline each got seven votes. Merck and Sinovac got six. Sinopharm and CureVac were next with five. Innovio and Medicago each got four. Now, Innovio also earned an important distinction, and it's a dubious one. It's the honor of being the company least likely to bring its vaccine candidate to market, at least according to the 92 experts we consulted. They voted Innovio off the island. What about COVID treatments? Not vaccine, but treatments. Well, that's another closely contested race. Gilead's in first with 17 votes. Remember, they own Remdesivir, which has been very effective in cutting short hospital stays, followed by Regeneron with tremendous Ebola experience in second. Eli Lilly and privately held Abacellar in third, Roche in fourth, bringing up the rear. There's Veer Biotech and GlaxoSmithKline. Now, the more I dig into the medical research, the more I realize that a vaccine is essential. If COVID's really as virulent as the experts say, you better pray one of these injections works, because that's the only way we beat it 
for good. And this Grim Reaper flu is going to make a vicious comeback in the fall, something you don't want to think about on a day when our nation had one of its biggest number of COVID-19 hospitalizations today. Yes, that's right. Many of the doctors I deal with are very concerned about the fall. I also realize something else. The race for a vaccine might have more than one winner. We may need to take several shots at this thing. I could even it could even be like the flu where there's a new vaccine every year or a series of flu shots to meet it. With that in mind, how do we take advantage of this poll? Again, the only one that I've seen. Okay, maybe that's in bad taste. But my job is to help try to satisfy your needs to to make money. It's what you want. So how do we figure out what's going to happen in this race for the vaccine? Okay, what I find most interesting about our survey is that the stage of testing doesn't seem to matter much at all. For example, Novavax, right? It just got a $1.6 billion commitment from the government to complete their test and scale-up manufacturing. They start phase three trials in the fourth quarter. Yet Novavax is tied with J&J, which hasn't even started human trials that they're about to. uh, And they've got do have massive scale to build out billion vaccines, as well as Sanofi Glaxo. That's a shotgun marriage, which goes into human trials in September. I think the excitement about the AstraZeneca Oxford vaccine makes a ton of sense. I know many people who went into that trial because it's 30,000 people because the initial results were so promising in a smaller group, even though the stock has been crushed since the data came out on Monday. Why did people sell the news? Well, I think the expectations got out of control. Buyers seemed to have wanted some sort of miracle and said they got something very positive, but still within the bounds of reason. The thing about vaccines, as opposed to actual cures, is that the FDA will never just stop the trials and preemptively declare a winner, which sometimes happens with regular drugs. Testing a vaccine takes time because the only way to be sure it works is you give it to thousands of people and then you wait to see if they get sick. I mean, there's no real way to accelerate that process. But even though we can't really speed this thing up, I like AstraZeneca's stock here, down nearly 10 points from its high with a 3.4% yield, and more importantly, an excellent anti-cancer franchise that's worth a great deal. Next one's tough. I used to be a huge fan of Moderna, you know that, because they have an exciting AI-powered approach to drug development. But then the company revealed some positive data on its COVID vaccine right at the time as executives dumped the stock, and it left a bad taste in my mouth. I understand that those execs had cell plans in place. You can do that with the SEC. But as someone who's both created and used cell plans myself, I can tell you they should have been canceled going into what was obviously going to be a period of heightened scrutiny. Yes, I think Moderna's become too promotional, too quick to praise its own work off a very small sample size, which is odd because they've never actually produced a vaccine before. Now, I did love this stock in the 20s and 30s and in the 40s and even in the 50s. But up here at 75, Oh, and the survey was taken before the company lost an important patent contest to a rival company just now. The authoritative stat publication said this afternoon that the patent decision could delay the company's progress in the vaccine or cut into the company's profits if it succeeds. I now say no thank you. By contrast, Pfizer's partnered with this German BioNTech, and they've done, by, by the way, that trades here, and they've been remarkably non-promotional about the relative success. BioNTech stock is too binary for me. They don't have enough other shots on goal. But Pfizer has a portfolio of decent, albeit boring drugs. And while there's nothing huge in the pipeline, the company's got very deep pockets. So if their vaccine doesn't win, they can always make some very exciting acquisitions. Like Moderna, Pfizer's reached phase three, the home stretch. And it just got $1.95 billion from the U.S. government to produce a vaccine. Feds will own the first 100 million doses. Seems fair. I can't say much about Kensino Biologics. It's Chinese. The only Chinese stock I'm willing to recommend is Alibaba because the PRC stock market doesn't have enough regulations enforcing transparency. But let's talk about the three vaccines that are tied with seven votes. 
J&J, Novavax, and the, San, and the Sanofi Glaxo team up. And we've had all these uh, teams on. I think the Sanofi Glaxo candidate has great possibilities because both companies have excellent vaccine divisions, though they are late to the party. Novavax is ultra high risk, ultra high reward. It's a total long shot that's trading like it already won. Why? Because it got a $1.6 billion commitment from the president's Operation Warp Speed initiative. Well, it's disconcerting that people think that they are in the pole position, which leads me to my favorite, Johnson Johnson. I'm hearing nothing but good things about the trial, even as it's only now gotten to phase one. More importantly, aside from COVID, J&J is the best pipeline of these drug companies. Their vaccine could fail, and the stock may not even go down. That's how cheap this thing is. I think it's a buy right here. My travel trust has a big position in it. There's not much to say about the others. I like Regeneron for its COVID treatment, but I like it even more for its non-COVID drugs, including a surprisingly strong oncology portfolio that no one's talking about. As for Novio, the handicappers have spoken, and they say sell. The bottom line, we will revisit this race as we get closer to the finish line. But the bottom line, if you want to make an informed wager or at least invest on the vaccine stocks, I think AstraZeneca has the most promising formulation. However, J&J is the best stock. Because it's inexpensive and it's got so much else going if it turns out to be a loser in the COVID-19 vaccine race for a cure or at least immunity. Mark in Florida. Mark. Hi, Jim. It's a pleasure to speak with you on baseball's opening day. Yes, indeed. Something seems normal at last. And I like the guy who's throwing out that first pitch uh, for the Nationals. Uh, He's got an arm that... That's a Fauci. Fauci. Who did he play for before this? Okay, what's up? Uh, I have a question for you about Domino's. I know it's a company you like. I bought it six days ago, and in the four days, the market's been open since then. It's dropped 16 points. I thought maybe because it's considered a stay-at-home stock and the country was expecting a vaccine, but the packaged food stocks all have done well. Where, where do you think it's going to go from yeah, here? Yeah, Domino's ran up into the quarter. It was an excellent quarter. All I can tell you is, is that I think that uh, it is just a very, very good stock and a very good company, and I would own it right here. Let's go to Zenya in Massachusetts. Zenya. Jim, booyah. Booyah. Jim. I bought Peloton at 30, and, you know, I didn't expect it to go all the way to 65 so fast. I love the product. I believe in the company. But jury's still out on whether or not stay at home is here for the long term. Should I keep pushing the pedals and buy more? Or no, no, I what you do, I want you to cut the position in half tomorrow, uh, tomorrow morning. I want you to just say, you know what? I'm going to play with the house's money. I do believe that open, I've been doing a lot of work on gym openings. I've got to tell you, it's going to be very, very hard. Peloton's going to be in business for a long time. That said, bulls make money, bears make money, and hogs. Jim in Florida, Jim. Jim, be chill. Thank you, you so much for taking my call. Of course. Mike, chill man was active Mike. today. What's going on? My question is on a REIT uh, that yields over 17%, is down over 33% year-to-date, and has a P.E. of under 9. The symbol is G-E-O. Well, I like that music. Is that G-E-O's theme music? Um, no, you don't want to touch G-E-O. That yield, I think, is unsustainable, and I think you're playing with fire. Um, and, and I've got to tell you, uh, when you see yields over 7% in this market, you've got to start thinking that's not sustainable. All right. Things will not be the same until we get a vaccine. Forget everything else. As much as I love, you know, want everyone to wear a mask, I'm realistic. It's a vaccine. 
And if you want to invest in the vaccine stocks, AstraZeneca is most promising. But J&J is the best because if the vaccine that it's working on doesn't succeed, you may not lose money. On Mad Money tonight, the summer has featured a red-hot IPO market, and Encino was no exception, soaring 195% its debut. But it, it, is it still worth eyeing here, or did you miss the move? I'm giving you my take. Then I'm breaking down the moves in Tesla and Microsoft after earnings, and I'm talking with the CEO turning lemons into lemonade. Don't miss my sit-down with the newly minted company. Stay with Kramer. Don't miss a second of Mad Money. Follow at Jim Kramer on Twitter. Have a question? Tweet Kramer. Hashtag Mad Tweets. Send Jim an email to madmoney at CNBC.com or give us a call at 1 800 743 CNBC. Miss something? Head to madmoney.cnbc.com. Maybe the bar has finally gotten too high. Last night, two amazing companies, Tesla and Microsoft, reported absolutely stellar quarters. Yet their stocks ended up getting slammed today. Microsoft, was, this time, was hit from the get-go, closing down more than 4%. Tesla initially rallied huge, at one time up roughly about 100 points. Then it just got hammered, closing down $79. Has the market at long last gotten sick of the great Nasdaq stocks? Is that what Netflix was telling us when it sold off after a remarkable quarter with poultry guidance last week? Do we need to start worrying about Facebook? How about Alphabet? How about Apple when they report next week? Like Mr. T in Rocky Three, I predict... Pain. The house of pain. All these big tech stocks trade together. And whenever you ki- when you kick off earnings season with such disappointing action, well, it doesn't bode well for the rest of the group. First, though, Netflix was different. It, it did have a fantastic quarter. CEO Reed Hastings lowered the boom on us with a discouraging forecast. That would have crushed most stocks. Tesla and Microsoft, though, Tesla put up a gorgeous set of numbers. But when the stock reversed, we started hearing about how these were government-aided results. On the Microsoft conference call, we heard there was some hair on Azure, their fast-growing cloud infrastructure division. And some analysts complained about the strength of the Windows forecast. All right, now let me tell you the truth. Years ago, I got to go on an aircraft carrier. It was called the... Uh, Harry, the USS Harry S. Truman. And it was one of the most thrilling things I've ever done. I found myself next to an officer who guided planes to land on the tarmac. It was a training exercise. When a pilot's landing on an aircraft carrier, they have one goal, slow the plane down enough to make it stop before it goes over the edge. The guy focused on the plane and would tell the pilot whether they were coming in right. Periodically, he did say, you're coming in too hot which meant the pilot had to fly over the carrier and try again. Didn't mean there was anything wrong with the pilot or the plane. It was just going too fast to land safely. And that's how I feel about these terrific tech companies that account for more than 20% of the S&P 500. They're all coming in too hot. And unlike those Navy pilots, they don't get a do-over. So will they come in too hot and go right over the side, or will they manage to pull out and live to play again? I think they're all going to live to play again. Despite the warnings of Goldman Sachs today, I'm betting Apple will be fine. Alphabet stock is actually cheap, although they could easily find a way to screw it up. Management doesn't play for the quarter. Facebook, man, sell-up might be inevitable there because the long knives are always out for Mark Zuckerberg. And the bar for Amazon is the highest it's ever been, which is worrisome because Amazon's a little like Alphabet in that they don't play for the quarter either. They play for the long haul. All of them are coming in too hot, especially with the big tech antitrust hearings on Capitol Hill next week. So what do you do? If you want to own these stocks right now, you've got to be willing to take some pain. 
You're, you're going to have to watch the rest of the market catch up a bit to them while they decline in value. But at some point, they'll make a comeback because these are indeed the best companies on earth. Now, maybe you're nimble enough to flit in and out, that flip to get out here, flip back in at a lower level. And that's probably what I've actually tried to do at my hedge fund. But most people are not that nimble. And if you're a long-term investor, I think it makes no sense to do anything other than ride it out. That said, you should go listen to conference calls because there's nothing wrong with Tesla or Microsoft. They're in great shape. The stocks just got too hot for the moment. The fundamentals had nothing to do with the sell-off. I'm going to repeat that. Nothing to do with the sell-off. Unfortunately, they also had nothing to do with the last 10 to 15 percentage points of upside, which is why their names are so vulnerable. Stick with Craig. Over the last couple of months, this market has been flooded with new IPOs. Sell, 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 and some of these stocks are coming in so hot that they're impossible to ignore. Take Encino. This is a company that makes cloud-based software for banks. Priced at $31 last week and then ran instantly to $71 before closing, get this, at $91 on his first day of trading. Didn't think... This thing, I, I mean, it really tripled less than 24 hours. That's the biggest first day move since Baidu, the Chinese company, which came public way back in 2005. 15 years since we've seen this. Since then, Asino's already uh, started cooling off. It's pulled back to 71 and change as of today. But that's still way up from the IPO price. So I think it's worth asking whether the stock deserves the hype. On the one hand, it makes sense that people lap this deal up. Encino is a rapidly growing company that sits at the crossroads of two of the best secular growth stories around, cloud-based software and fintech, financial technology. I mean, it's a marriage made in heaven. On the other hand, the stock is very, very expensive at these levels. It's one of the more expensive cloud plays up here, and the cloud plays aren't cheap to begin with. Before we get into the pros and cons, though, you need to understand what they actually do. Their key product, the Encino, and I know it sounds like the city out in California, it's N, big C, I, N, O. The Encino Bank Operating System helps financials digitize, automate, and streamline all sorts of complex processes with the help of data analytics and intel- artificial intelligence. The banks tend to not be able to do this themselves. Think loan origination, client onboarding, business lending, customer service, regulatory compliance. Encino knows what banks need from their software. Uh, the company was actually founded in a bank. That's right. A bank in North Carolina did it. They were just trying to improve their own operations. They realized that a solution for the entire industry. So they spun off Encino as a separate company at the end of 2011. It's now a one-stop shop digital banking platform, financial institutions large and small. Some say it's indispensable. This is a good time to be in the fintech business. We've reached a point where the banks need to go digital if they're going to stay competitive. The whole industry is in the middle of a massive technology-driven transformation. And that's why financial institutions now spend more money on tech than any other industry. Did you know that? And because the banks were relative latecomers to the cloud, this transition is still in its very early innings, maybe the first inning. And that's where Encino comes in. Not only does their platform help banks go fully digital to the point where the software quickly pays for itself, it also enables their employees to work remotely. Still, can that really justify the incredible move in the stock right out of the gate? Well, consider the numbers. In the last fiscal year, Encino has 51% revenue growth. That only slowed to 49.9% in the most recent quarter. That's in the upper echelon. Plus, the company increasingly is making its money from lucrative software-as-a-service subscriptions. Very sticky. 78% of the business. People love subscription software-as-a-service 
companies. Well, Encino's not yet profitable. That's because they need to spend in order to grow like a weed. Just as important, though, the margins are headed in the right direction. The company's gross margin, what they make after the cost of the goods sold, has risen from 47% in 2018 to nearly 58% in the latest quarter. That's pretty solid. And their adjusted operating margin is now at a negative 5.4%, meaning the company's not that far from turning a profit. So where do I come down on this one? Now, look, I certainly get the appeal. What could be better than a cloud-based financial technology play in this environment with a subscription kicker? The cloud stocks have been some of the best performers in the Kramer COVID-19 index, and the same goes for fintech. I like that Encino's rapid growth, and more importantly, the 50% growth rate seems stable. Normally, companies with ultra-fast growth start slowing simply due to the law of large numbers. A lot of people accused Microsoft's having that with Azure last night. But Encino's been hanging in there for around 50% for years. Man, that's encouraging. I like the rising margins. I wouldn't be surprised to see this company turn a profit as soon as next year. Maybe best of all, Encino's business won't be gone away. Yes, it's the stickiness I'm talking about. Of course, most software as a service companies are sticky. I mean, that's the whole point of subscription business, business based business model. But Encino is extra sticky. When a bank brings in their software for its operating system, that's as mission critical as it gets. In other words, indispensability. Switching to a competitor would be very time consuming and very expensive. And of course, uh, something could go wrong. We know that because it typically takes Encino six to 18 months to land a new client. Same is true for the competitors. Last year, the company had 147% subscription revenue retention. Wow. Meaning the customers not only stuck with them, they spent nearly 50%, 50% more on Encino services than they did the years before. This is just common sense. They run the bank's operating system. Of course, they aren't going anywhere. Which banks? Okay, well, listen to this list. Bank of America, which is very tech savvy. Barclays. Banco Santander, TD Bank, and KeyBank, among many others. Given that Bank of America has the best digital presence in the industry, that's a pretty sterling endorsement, isn't it? Oh, and there's one more key endorsement. Encino Software runs on Salesforce.com's platform. And Salesforce is actually their second largest shareholder. In other words, it's got the Mark Benioff, CEO of Salesforce, seal of approval. I trust his judgment on early-stage software-as-a-service companies, given they pretty much invented the industry. Not for nothing, Salesforce invested $100 million in Zoom video at the time of its IPO last year. Ka-ching, ka-ching. Now, these are all positives, but what about the negatives? All right, I don't love that it's seen as unprofitable, even if they're well in their way. More worrisome, the company has negative operating cash flow. Not great, but not necessarily a problem. It's just raised hundreds of millions of dollars from the IPO. But my biggest concern? Okay. Like most of the attractive IPOs from the last couple of months, Encino's stock is insanely expensive. The company currently has a market capitalization of roughly $6.5 billion. It did only $138 million in sales this year. That means Encino's trading at 47 times, not earnings, but sales. If the company can keep growing at a 50% clip, well, all that would mean is that it's going to work out to be 31 times this year's sales. And 31 times sales is a nosebleed. Listen to me. When you look at the 50 cloud software stocks that we keep track of, and we keep track of them better than almost anybody, I'm telling you, only four of them are more expensive than Encino, last year's numbers. And listen to this. Zoom Video, you know that's been fantastic. Datadog, everybody wanted to buy that company before it came public. Livongo, we've had them on multiple times. Koopa Software, multiple times. Livongo is maybe a life coach for many dangerous illnesses. Koopa is that, is that procurement machine. On, the, on these years' numbers, it's roughly in the same league as CrowdStrike, Fastly, Livongo Health, and Kramer Family Fave Okta. That is about as rarefied as you get. 
CrowdStrike and Livongo have faster growth rate and are close to profitability. But Fastly and Ota are slower growing and unprofitable. The thing is, those two are COVID plays. Fastly is a content delivery network that ensures all this digital stuff actually works. I really like that company. Of course, Okta is a super cybersecurity play. Uh, and uh, we had them on only this week. What can I say? They're doing terrific. I don't feel comfortable paying that much. It feels too much like chasing. If you valued Encino at 20 times sales, this would be a $45 stock. Value at 30 times sales, which is still extremely pricey, only a handful of stocks. It'd be a $68 stock. I can't give you my blessing to buy this one until it falls below 68. And ideally closer to, yes, mid-40s. If you're patient, I think you'll get the chance. This market suddenly turned these high multiple stocks as this was a sliver deal, meaning that they'll only sell a little bit of stock in the IPO. And sooner or later, there'll be secondary offerings. The bottom line, Encino is a terrific combination of cloud-based enterprise software and financial tech. But we have to be disciplined here. And discipline means waiting for this fresh face IPO to come down before you pull the trigger. Daniel in New York. Daniel. Jim, yesterday on Squawk on the Street, you and David brought up the 10-year chart of Thermo Fisher, up over 700%. So I couldn't help but think of Kramer COVID favorite Viva System, V-E-E-V, up over 650% in five years, up over 80% year-to-date, $1.38 billion in free cash, and zero long-term debt. So I'm wondering, do I still have time to start a position in this life science winner, even though Morningstar maintains a one-star rating? Well, I'm not sure what they do. I know that Peter Gaston has been on the show a bunch of times, and he's from Salesforce. He's absolutely terrific. I, you have my blessing. Now, remember, these stocks are coming under pressure. You have my blessing to put on a 10% position only, okay? 10% and then leg it on the way down. we got a tough week for these high multiple stocks coming up, so don't get aggressive. I need to go to Daniel in California. Daniel. Booyah, Jimmy Chills. Booyah, my friend. What's up? Here. Booyah. Long time viewer here. First time caller. Mm-hmm. And um, I just want to say I really love your mask initiative. And thanks again for your Tesla call. Made me tons of money. And thankfully, oh, I'm for the earnings report. You're the first person to acknowledge that I liked it at 270. And there were people who say he came in too late. 270 is too late? What a tough crowd. Go ahead. What do you got? So, Jim, after investing in a few IPOs that ended up fizzling out, I wanted to add to one of my positions after reading an article about There was multiple banks that started coverage on it this Tuesday. Before that, it only had one buy rating, but now it has 15 buy ratings, two hold ratings, and a consensus price that ends up having a potential upside of 25% from the current price. Also, with the virus resurging, I thought it would be a good opportunity to benefit from the supermarket sector, uh, especially with uh, Walmart, Kroger, and the other big, big players. They're so expensive to get into right now. So my question, Jim... What do you think about ACI, Albertson Supermarket? I think Albertson's is at the low end of the range at 16. I think it's a good, slow grower. I like it very much. I think it can go to 18, 19. I don't bet that it goes much further than that right now. But that's not a bad move. All right. I understand the hype surrounding Encino. It is terrific. But I also understand discipline. So you've got to wait for it to come down at least a little by small piece, but understand these stocks are under assault here. Hey, much more man money, including my sit down with the CEO of Lemonade. Can the company juice more out of this market than electric vehicle fever, U.S.-China geopolitics, commodity cycles, and special purpose acquisition companies? One company can help investors play all those forces. I'll reveal the name when I sit down with the CEO. And all your calls rapid fire in tonight's edition of the Lightning Round. So stay with Kramer.
summer, we've had a major IPO heat wave. It all started with Lemonade, a company that's revolutionizing, of all things, the insurance industry. And this one came public with a bang three weeks ago, shooting from $29 to $69 on its first day of trading. Lemonade's a disruptor. They use artificial intelligence and a terrific digital platform to make the once agonizing process of buying insurance relatively painless. Right now, they do renters, homeowners, and pet insurance, though they keep expanding. Last week, I told you this was a phenomenal story and predicted that Lemonade could have more upside. But I also said you should wait for a pullback before you do any buying because the stock's incredibly expensive. Since then, it's run from 74 to 82. I worry about valuation. Look, we saw a big run, a big revolt against valuation, high valuation just in today's session. That said, the business is very compelling. At the right price, I will pound the table on this one. Do not take it from me. This is an exciting company. Let's check it with Daniel Schreiber. He's the co-founder and chairman and CEO of Lemonade to get a clearer picture of how his company's shaking up this insurance industry. Mr. Schreiber, welcome to Mad Money. Congratulations on that amazing IPO. Thanks, Jim. Great to be with you. All right, so Daniel, I gotta ask this immediately. Do the all the insurance companies hate you because we don't like dealing with them? And uh, I have friends who brag about your app and show me how much money they save. <laughs> I do hope they don't hate us. Um, we've got a lot of admiration for them, and I don't envy them. You know, insurance may be the most disruptible industry on the planet, and it's led by amazing people, smart people who see the writing on the wall but they're managing companies that were founded in the age of the horse-drawn carriage. And it's just really tough when you've got tens of thousands of brokers and code dating back to the 80s, really tough to contend with the challenges of the 21st century. I think our job is easier than theirs. Well, one of the things that fascinates me is as part of the old school where I have my brokers and they make their calls, they put it out and they come back and I don't know how much money they make and whether I'm really getting good policy is that it is so ingrained in society that I don't know if any of the companies that are currently in business can pivot to what you do. No, I I think it's genuinely difficult. And at a strategic level, what they're discovering is that things that seemed for the last 100 years to be assets are beginning to look a lot like liabilities. So like you said, you've got tens of thousands of brokers. You thought that that was a fabulous asset. In the age of direct-to-consumer via the app, it's beginning to look like a liability. Or you've been investing in tech for tens of years since the 1980s, and you've got this spaghetti code that costs you billions to maintain, and it's much more of a, um, of a black hole than a black box. Is that an asset or is that a liability? Very difficult to transform these 100-year-old businesses doing tens of billions of dollars. Same way they've been, they've been training in their management teams for legacy preservation, not for business transformation, et cetera, et cetera. It's the classic innovator's dilemma. Yes. And one of the things I would say is they have a counting house. Yes, think Dickens, counting house aspect to them where you're actually a B corporation. I mean, what, you guys just decided that you wanted to be good guys? I mean, are you capitalists? <laughs> we are capitalists and we're backed by capitalists. And as, as you said, we had an IPO recently. But insurance is plagued by perhaps the costliest problem in insurance is distrust. People don't like the insurance companies. They don't trust the insurance companies. It doesn't matter how much money the insurance company has. People don't believe they're going to pay them when the day comes. So when we came to take a look at insurance, and neither I nor my co-founder knew much about insurance beforehand, we've got 20 years as tech entrepreneurs. When we took a look at this sector, we found a sector that was plagued by distrust. People felt entitled to embellish their claims. The brand loyalty was way low. So we wanted to try and tackle that problem, not just the technology. In Lemonade, you buy an insurance policy in 90 seconds. You get paid in as little as three seconds. 
that crashes cars and it delights consumers. But there was a deeper problem to resolve, which is how do you avoid the conflict of interest between me and the insurance company? And establishing ourselves as a public benefit corporation, as a B Corp, where a lot of underwriting profits goes to nonprofits, allowed us to reimagine the whole business model. And in fact, we live in a flat fee model, a lot like other tech companies, but nothing like insurance companies, where, where you pay me a buck, I tell you in advance that I'm going to keep 25 cents on the dollar. And if there's money left over after paying claims and buying the insurance, I'm going to give it to a charity of your choosing. This isn't just do good, do good stuff. It's about aligning interests. So I don't make money by denying your claims. And you'll think twice before embellishing your claims. And hopefully we turn what is today and to uh, play a game, a conflicted relationship between two players into a trilateral relationship by involving nonprofits as well. It keeps you honest. It keeps us honest. And it's allowed us to climb the ranks to be the number one most trusted and loved brand in insurance. And we've only been in the market for three years. So we're very gratified for that. Right. Is, is uh, COVID-19 playing any sort of role in your business? Not what we might have expected. We've found that our business is thankfully incredibly resilient. Um, and in fact, most of the trends that we were seeing in terms of our growth and conversion and marketing efficiencies, which were all progressing really nicely before the pandemic hit, have continued throughout the pandemic. And being built as we are on a digital substrate, everybody works anyway from you know, any browser in the world. You can get into all of our tools. So our teams have been able to work remotely for several months now across four locations and of course, buying insurance with a bot rather than with a broker, there's none of the social distancing aspects that are available 24-7, empathic as ever. So we've seen all of the KPIs, all of the core um, elements of our business have continued to thrive throughout the pandemic. Hopefully that will continue going forward as well. Uh, but one last question. I know it or- that you've got a great business model. I think you can really crush it. But how long do you want to go losing money and taking over this space? Because you do have to block everybody else. I know that. At the same time, you can't let any of these older guys come in, but we don't want we don't want you to run out of money. No, and the fundamentals of our business are very healthy. Um, so we've got a loss ratio that is on par with the best in the industry. What we're really doing is making investments in the future, launching new products, launching new territories, capturing more customers. And we think that somebody is going to become the iconic incarnation of what insurance should be in the 21st century. Right. And it's a prize worth fighting for. Insurance companies can last for hundreds of years, can do over $100 billion a year. So this is definitely a prize worth um, fighting for. Classic incumbents are flat-footed going into the 21st century, so we do want to make heavy investments right now. The prize is so big that we could be growing. We're growing at over 100% a year. That's been compounding for a few years now. We think that that could continue for such a long time. This market is as close to unlimited as possible, and hopefully every dollar we're investing now will be returned to us several fold in the years and decades to come. I think you got a great story. I really do. And I'm glad to see this industry finally being disrupted. Daniel Schreiber, Chairman and CEO of Lemonade. Great to meet you, sir. Thank you, Jim. All right, guys, sometimes you just hear a story and you say, you know what, I'm willing to risk how expensive it is. This is a terrific story. If you want to buy some, after listening to this man, I say it's okay. But remember, the high multiple stocks, of which this is one, are under a lot of pressure right now. Mad Money's back in. It is time! It's time for the night! 
and then the lightning round is over. Are you ready? Ski daddy, tell me the lightning round question, but it was start with Teresa in Ohio. Teresa. Booyah, Kim. Booyah. Love, love, love you, the book, the club. Uh, oh. Shout out to your staff. Whoa. And a huge thank you to your family for their sacrifice of your time and hard work you give you to men are very kind. It, it's sincerely You are very kind. Thank you very much. Thank you. You are so welcome. Mean every word of it. Thank you. Wow. I reached my full position in February on the trade desk. Ticker TTD right. and would like your thoughts. Oh, I like Trade Desk. It's incredibly well run. It's virtually, uh, it's really the only company that people want to use other than Alphabet. I just think you stick with TTD. Wild trader, though, and thank you for those kind comments. How about we go to Dylan in Georgia? Dylan. Hey, Jim. My dad and I are big fans of the show. Oh, thank you. I wanted to get your thoughts on the company Astronic, uh, symbol APRO. The stock's taken a big hit since the pandemic. Do you think it's a buy? No, it's too speculative. And look, if you want to do anything aerospace, I'm going to have to send you to uh, to either Raytheon or to Honeywell, which reports tomorrow morning. Let's go to Tom in Florida. Tom. Hey, Jim. How you doing? Thanks for taking my call. Okay. Really appreciate all your help over the years. You're awesome. Thank you. I'm going to get right to it. Thank you, man. Can I talk to you about GW Pharma, now known as Greenwich Biosciences? Now, you've had them on. They have that FDA approval for Epidiolex, the only one for epilepsy made from marijuana. Right. They cranked all the way up to 195. Tanks went way down. Now they're coming back. Okay, okay so, Tom, here's what's happening. People kept thinking that everyone would use it off patents. I mean, off uh, label. In other words, that the doctors would prescribe it to more things than just the limited label that it's got, and they haven't done that, which is why the stock is stuck. I actually like that. I think it's a good company. You're always going to need dosing. If you're going to have any sort of success to uh, cannabis, it's got to be dosed, GW doses. Let's go to Waz in Colorado. Waz. Hi, Mr. Kramer. Hi. A good investment considering their 5G spectrum? Only, yeah, they do have a lot of spectrum. I kind of like it. I'm, I'm very much alone in liking this, okay? I do not know a lot of people who like it. I do like it, so I'm in the minority. Bonnie in California. Bonnie. Hi, Jim. Thank you for taking my call. Oh, you're quite welcome. Um, um, I have been a fan of yours for years. We have your book, Get Rich Carefully, and oh, we great. watch you every night. Thank you. Anyway, you're welcome. I was wondering what your thoughts were on Takeda Pharmaceuticals. Good company, good yield, uh, not talked about enough. Japanese has some great uh, research here. I think they're smart people. I wouldn't mind buying that stock. I'm in favor of buying that stock. Let's go to Dave in New York. Dave. Booyah, Jim. Booyah, Dave. So, Jim, coming from a guy who loves you with all his heart, what do you think about M-O-O-G? Move! Moog is not a company I've looked at in a very long time, which means, therefore, I cannot opine on it, and I have to come back with a better analysis. Thank you for the high spirits in which you approach the show. And that, ladies and gentlemen, conclusion of the Lightning Round. The Lightning Round is sponsored by TD Ameritrade. Every time the White House ratchets up tensions with China, 
You hear a lot about manufacturing and American companies that move lots of merchandise in the People's Republic. But the most important industry caught in the crossfire is one that rarely gets enough attention. And it's called rare earth minerals, or rare earths as they're known. They're critical materials used in a host of high-tech end markets. We need them for electric vehicles, drones, fence systems, wind turbines, robotics, even smartphones. There's just one little problem. The vast majority of rare earth minerals are produced in China. And if we're headed for a new Cold War with the PRC, or even with a newly heightened trade war, that dominance gives them, not us, a lot of leverage. Fortunately, there's one, okay, just one, rare earths mining and processing facility in the United States. And the company that owns that, uh, MP, and that's Mary Peter Materials, is now looking to go public. This is an interesting story. The mine's previous owner, Molly Corp, used to call about that all the time, went bankrupt five years ago because of Chinese dumping. They overproduced and flooded the market in order to take out the competition. But in 2017, when the president started taking a harder line on China's unfair trade practices, a group of investors came together as MP Materials, and they bought the mine. Then last week, they rolled out a plan to come public via reverse merger with a special purpose acquisition company. Yes, a SPAC. It's called Fortress Value Acquisition Corp., and that's FVAC for you home gamers. You know what? I'm intrigued. So let's take a closer look with Jim Latinsky. He's the co-chairman of MP Materials, who slated to become chairman and CEO once the merger with Fortress Value. That's that SPAC goes through. Mr. Latinsky, welcome to Mad Money. Hey, Jim. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. Oh, thank you, Jim. All right, so can you please explain the business and the opportunity as the only rare earth mine in the United States? Sure. So we make the materials that go into, as you said, electric vehicles, wind turbines, drones, robots, pretty much many of the advanced motion technologies of, you know, of the 21st century, as well as a lot of sophisticated weaponry like the railgun. Um, and so we are unique in that we have the ability, because of our resource base, um, we are really the only producer of scale in the Western Hemisphere and really the only environmentally friendly one of scale outside of China. Uh, and so our opportunity is to uh, essentially help uh, global industry decouple some of this supply chain from China for these materials that are becoming ever so critical. Okay, so Jim, in the old days, uh, we used to get a huge number of calls in the writing in the lighting round about Molly Corp. And I said two things. Sure. One is the Chinese, of which I have been very critical of, are flooding the world with this stuff in order to wipe them out. And two, their balance sheet was bad. How are you going to deal with the problems that Molly Corp had? Sure. So Molly Corp was a decade early. It, the, a great analogy would be sort of if you think about the Internet, you know, what happened with Pets.com versus think of how technology impacts our lives today. Uh, Molly, when Molly Corp went public, there wasn't even a Tesla on the road, really, or there certainly wasn't a Model S. Uh, and so they were ahead of their time. They had a lot of execution challenges. And when they went bankrupt, a lot of people uh, did not think that this site would be able to compete against China. Um, we actually took control of the site in 2017. We had eight employees at the time. We have 220 today. We are profitable. We have solved uh, uh, most of the Molycorp challenges, uh, and we represent 15% of the global rare earth industry today uh, at such a critical time as we now start to see demand uh, at an inflection point. Okay, so Jim, my obvious question is, uh, given our viewer base, they would have loved a piece of an MP Materials IPO. So why are you choosing this particular method to be public? Absolutely. So we strongly considered an IPO. We were working towards it. And um, ultimately, the, the SPAC structure actually was the most efficient, effective uh, way to get public quickly. 
And frankly, we thought we were able to be more transparent with our business plan. There's a detailed presentation on our website. Mm-hmm. Um, and we, you know, historically, SPACs have been challenged by misaligned incentives. Um, but we were able to structure something creatively that uh, eliminated uh, the misaligned incentives and, and really made all stakeholders focus on long-term value creation. Uh, so it was a great structure for us. And I think actually the evolution of the structure you're going to see, as we've seen certainly in the electrification space, a lot more capital formation this way. There are a lot of benefits to the structure uh, as, as we found as fiduciaries for our company. Okay, now I want you to explain to our viewers about the magnet concept so they just don't think that sure. this is just something in a test tube. Sure. Well, you know, starting about 30 years ago when the Chinese took over the rare earth industry, they ultimately uh, very, very intelligently moved downstream and they took over the magnet industry. So today, if you think about your Tesla, that magnet was made in China. Uh, our mission as a company is to restore the full rare earth supply chain to the United States of America. And so we have this unique resource. We can also do it in an environmentally uh, conscious way. I'm sure you, you heard, uh, and I, I believe you mentioned on the air earlier today about Elon Musk talking about the importance of nickel yes. uh, and, and environmentally conscious nickel. And, um, and so we are really the only scaled company that, can, that, that is state-of-the-art, environmentally conscious uh, in the Western Hemisphere. And so we believe that provides a very unique opportunity to move downstream into the magnet. And, Jim, this is why that's so important, is when you, and when you think about your viewers uh, thinking about the predecessor right. entity, we have the unique opportunity to transform the cash flow stream of this company from a volatile commodity-like cash flow stream uh, over time to a more industrial cash flow stream focused on the magnets uh, and beyond for, for what is a high-growth industry. Uh, and that should really be, you know, allow us to grow the bottom line as well as uh, have multiple expansion for the company. Um, and you know, there's, there's lots of examples of companies that are able, able to transform their model. And when you can really get that multiple expansion, there's a lot of long-term enterprise value creation for shareholders. Oh, definitely. Well, look, this is very exciting. Uh, I was I did like Molly very much, except for that balance sheet in the chime. It was a great yeah. spec. Well, you know, okay? we are fully, Jim, Jim, we are fully equitized at deal close. So we, like we have that. solved that problem as well. All right. Well, yeah. that's Jim Latiski, the CEO of MP Materials. It's going to be so merging much. with us back. And I've got to tell you, that is one exciting story. Mad Money's back after the break. Intel drop about 10% after a good quarter? Well, because they don't have the next-gen chip that everybody wants. AMD has it, which is why AMD stock is soaring after the close. It makes sense. I like to say there's always a bull market somewhere. I probably try to find it just for you right here on Mad Money. I'm Jim Kramer, and I will see you next time. <laughs> 